I invite your attention and your reverence and affection to the public reading of God's holy word as we find it in Exodus chapter 39. By God's grace, we will read verses 1 to 31. Moreover, from the blue and purple and scarlet material, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place, as well as the holy garments which were for Aaron, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he made the ephod of gold and of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. Then they hammered out on gold sheets and cut them into threads to be woven with the blue and the purple and the scarlet material and the fine linen, the work of a skillful workman. They made attaching shoulder pieces for the ephod in which was attached at its two upper ends. And the skillfully woven band which was on it was like its workmanship of the same material, of gold and of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And they made the onyx stones set in gold filigree settings, and they were engraved like the engravings of a signet according to the names of the sons of Israel. And he placed them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he made the breastpiece the work of a skillful workman, like the workmanship of the ephod of gold and of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It was square. They made the breastpiece folded double, a span long and a span wide when folded double. And they mounted four rows of stones on it. The first row was a row of ruby, topaz, and emerald and the second row of turquoise, sapphire, and the diamond, and the third row, jacinth, and an agate, and an amethyst, and the fourth row, a beryl, and an onyx, and a jasper. They were set in gold filigree settings when they were mounted, and the stones were corresponding to the names of the sons of Israel. They were twelve, corresponding to their names engraved with the engravings of a signet, each with its name for the twelve tribes." And they made on the breastpiece chains like cords of twisted cordage work in pure gold. And they made two gold filigree settings and two gold rings and put the two rings on the two ends of the breastpiece. Then they put the two gold cords and the two rings at the ends of the breastpiece. And they put the other two ends of the two cords on the two filigree settings and put them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front of it. And they made two gold rings and placed them on the two ends of the breastpiece, on its inner edge, which was next to the ephod. Furthermore, they made two gold rings and placed them on the bottom of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod, and the front of it close to the place where it joined above the woven band of the ephod. And they bound the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord, that it might be on the woven band of the ephod, and that the breastpiece might not come loose from the ephod, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he made the robe of the ephod of woven work, all of blue. And the openings of the robe was at the top in the center, as the opening of a coat of mail with a binding all around its opening, 
that it might not be torn. And they made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet material and twisted linen on the hem of the robe. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around on the hem of the robe and alternating a bell and a pomegranate all around on the hem of the robe for the service, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And they made the tunics of finely woven linen for Aaron and his sons, and the turban of fine linen, and the decorated caps of fine linen, and the linen breeches of fine twisted linen, and the sash of fine twisted linen, and blue and purple and scarlet material, the work of the weaver, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and inscribed it like the engravings of a signet, holy to the Lord. And they fastened a blue cord on it to fasten it to the turban above, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It's an honor to be with you this morning and to have the opportunity to proclaim the good news of the gospel to you. And you're thinking, from that passage? Yeah, from that passage. We spent a lot of time at the conference this weekend talking about nakedness, and so I thought, to bounce it all out, we need to talk about clothing for a little bit before I left. All right? And so, some background to this text for me, personally. Um, in a past life, I was a part of a church, and a bunch of us were preaching together through um, the book of Exodus on Sunday evenings. And we had really no like st- structure or schedule. We were just like, whoever was next was going to do the next thing. And one Monday, I got the call that I was going to have Exodus 39. I thought, like, you have got to be kidding me. Of all the books, or of all the chapters, right? This, this, this chapter is about them making priestly garments, right? It is not the most exciting chapter in the Bible. In fact, it's a rehash as well of Exodus 28. Eleven chapters earlier, they talked about how to make all of these garments. Then in this chapter, they talk about making them. So we've, in some sense, covered the business. And I thought, how are we going to make any sense in this? How is Exodus 39, the gospel promised beforehand, which Paul talks about um, in Romans? And I thought, Help me, Lord. So I prayed and went at it. And you know what? This text is amazing and marvelous. And it declares to us the hope of the gospel in amazing ways. And so I hope that by the end of this time, you'll go home again and say, I'm going to read that text because it is so remarkable and amazing. And it produces hope and encouragement. Okay? So that's what I want to do. Um, In terms of content, it's interesting Lower this down a little bit. Sorry. In terms of content, it's interesting to observe that 74 verses in the book of Exodus are dedicated to these garments. 74 verses. 43 verses in Exodus 28 and 31 verses in Exodus 39 that we just wrote. This is more than Titus and Philemon put together. So what it is about these garments that make them so important that God would dedicate so much of his Bible to their description and construction. How is this passage of Exodus the gospel promised beforehand? The best answer that I can give you to this question does not come from any commentary or any journal article or any book, 
nor does it come from any famous theologian or well-known pastor. Rather, the best answer to this question comes from Mark Twain. He once quipped, clothes make the man. Clothes make the man. That was, that was his saying. But you know the second part to that? Clothes make the man. Naked people have little or no influence on society. That's the second part of that. Whether or not Mark Twain had the Bible in mind or not when he made this statement, I do not know. I do know, however, that he is right. Clothes do make the man or the woman. But what do they make him or her? Let's take a look at the text in order to answer this question. First, this text explains that Aaron and his sons are to receive special clothes for their service in the tabernacle. All right? The Levites were set apart to serve, to be the servants of the tabernacle. These clothes include linen boxers, a long sleeve ankle length tunic, linen belts, a head covering, and something called a turban or a hat that you would wear in there. In addition to these basic items of clothing that all the Levites wore, Aaron, as the high priest, is outfitted with a blue robe with gold bells and rainbow-colored pomegranates, worn over the white linen tunic, a rainbow-colored ephod, something like a double-sided apron on sleeves or smocks, a, a, a rainbow-colored chest piece fitted with gold settings and 12 precious stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel. Finally, the high priest wears a golden crown around his turban with the inscription, Holy to the Lord, meaning 100% dedicated to Yahweh. Okay. Now, the description of this clothing in Exodus 39 is divided into seven sections, right? Now, you heard when Pastor Phil was reading, he, he, he read this statement at the end of each section, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And those seven statements divide this text into its seven sections, okay? The description of the chess piece occupies the central section and receives the most attention. So of the seven, the middle one, four, is the chess piece, and it gets 14 out of the 31 total verses. Okay, almost 50%. And it's that uh, bejeweled breastplate that would stand right there in the middle and be so central to what the priest was supposed to do or, or to convey. All right, now, in Exodus 39, very little is said about the purpose for which these garments are made or how they are to be used. Here's what we do know. First, in verse 1, these garments are for ministering in the holy place, the text says. Ministering in the holy place, the sanctuary or the tabernacle, and that they were made for Aaron and his sons. We are told that like the tabernacle, number 2, these garments are holy, holy, or 100% dedicated for use in Yahweh's presence. Right? You can't put these on and go out on a date around the town. Right? They're only like your church clothes and only the priests wear them. So number one, they're for ministering in the holy place, and they're 100% dedicated to that particular use. We learn one more thing, too. Back in Exodus 28, when these clothes are first described, these garments are designated once again as holy, and they make Aaron holy, and that they were created for glory and beauty. Glory and beauty. So the point of them is that they... Uh, invoke the images of glory and beauty on the high priest and in the context of worship in Yahweh's presence. Once again, by holy, the author means to communicate that these clothes were only used for tabernacle work, never for anything else. The designation glory and beauty are royal terms, depicting that the garments themselves must reflect the nature of the king. 
before whom these garments will appear in worship. So they reflect something of Yahweh's character, something of his presence, something he's trying to communicate to us, these stones in this breastplate. It is also worth noting that the construction of the priestly garments represents the final and climactic element in the tabernacle construction. It's the last thing that gets done. In the very next chapter, the Lord and his glory fill the tabernacle, and the book of Exodus comes to a conclusion in chapter 40. Given the climactic position of this event in the narrative, there must be some significance to them, right? You wait the best for last. So here are two questions that we're going to answer. Why would clothes be so important, and what do they represent or symbolize? Okay, why would clothes be so important, and what would they represent or symbolize? Significance. Believe it or not, the issue of clothing is very important in the Bible. It's probably not something you've thought about before. From the day in which God made the leather clothes for Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, until the day when we will receive from him white robes in the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21 and 22. The, the whole idea of clothing and being clothed is a theme that spans the Bible from beginning to end. But why would clothing be so important? What does it symbolize is the question. Let's begin by thinking about what clothing might symbolize for us today. Clothing in our own particular culture today, right? It, it can symbolize one's vocation, social status, achievements, or even associations. Let's think about that together. If you see someone walking around in medical scrubs, they probably work in the medical industry. Right? I see it all the time in Jackson, Mississippi, where I live. Someone comes in to um, you know, the place I'm eating breakfast, or in, they're in the medical scrubs. I think, OK, there's a nurse or a doctor or some kind of medical technician. They're going to work. Clothing can tell you about someone's vocation. Okay? Think about um, academic regalia. We just had graduations across the country. I'm an academic dean and academic, so I have to twice a year put on these long black robes with a funny hat and a hood that goes on the back, right? And that, those, that expresses some kind of achievement that someone is, is, you know, you graduated from high school or college or graduate school, something like that. So you can have, clothing can represent vocation. Clothing can represent achievement. What about a woman wearing a white wedding dress, right? That represents her current status as a bride. Does that make sense? So you've got status there. Uh, what about if you see someone walking around with a, uh, like a white collar around their neck? You know that they are a priest of some kind. So that's vocation again. And then you've got, of course, the high priestly athletic uniforms that we see on people all the time uh, that, that associate them with particular teams. So association, your clothing can say, here's how I associate with someone. You know? uh, on my campus where I teach, you know, if you see the people walking around in suits, they're normally the professors. The people not walking around in suits are normally the students, except if you're me, I don't never wear a suit, except today's like today. Um, and so you see how clothing is significant in our culture. It can tell you a lot about someone or something. Okay? In the Bible, however, and especially in the Old Testament, the imagery of clothing carries with it the significance of inheritance. Inheritance. So I want you to put in your brains that when someone's talking about clothing in the Bible, they're talking about inheritance at some level. Okay? Think about this. When God made those garments for Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, he was saying, you're still going to receive this inheritance. Right? When they sinned, they became uninherited. And God promised to them by these garments that, no, 
you're still going to be um, heirs. Heirs. Think about Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat, right? Why did it make his brothers so mad? Because that coat marked him as the firstborn or the primary heir of the other brothers. That's why they took it. Think about at the end of the Joseph narrative in Genesis 45, where Joseph, as an act of uh, mercy to his brothers, gives them all new sets of clothes, right? They had, in essence, killed him and excluded him from inheritance. And Joseph said, I'm bringing you into my inheritance now. It's inheritance. It's symbolic of inheritance. Think of Samson and his riddle wager for 30 sets of clothes, right? They didn't have Walmart or Target, something like that. So why would they need clothes? Because by, by taking their clothes, he was symbolically disinheriting those people and giving them their property. That's what that means. Think about 1 Samuel 18 when Jonathan makes a covenant of peace with David, right? What does Jonathan do? He takes off his clothes, his royal clothes, and gives them to David, right? Jonathan's clothes would have symbolized that he was the heir to the monarchy as Saul's son. Jonathan divests himself of his royal clothes and gives them to David, recognizing that David is the true heir to the monarchy. Elijah takes upon himself the mantle of Elijah. Sorry, Elisha. I always get those two wrong. Elisha takes upon himself the mantle of Elijah as a symbol of his prophetic inheritance, the double portion. Even in the New Testament, when the prodigal son returns home to his father, he is given new clothes as a symbol of the fact that he's now back a part of the family. He's re-inherited back in. In ancient marriage rites, so now this is just kind of ancient world stuff, not necessarily biblical, uh, you already know this, right? Uh, one of the ways in which a groom would symbolize his marriage to a bride is he would spread the corner of his garment over her, right? You think about Ruth and Boaz, or you think about Yahweh in Exodus Ezekiel 16, when you spread the corner of your garment over someone, you're taking them into your inheritance. Brides would also, in the ancient world, sew their dowries into their wedding dresses, right? Showing that their inheritance is incorporated into that garment symbolically. And in the ancient world, one of the ways in which you got divorced is you would tie your garments together, and then someone would chop them in half, right? And so you can see the bond that was there by way of inheritance has now been terminated. Clothing in the Bible represents inheritance. And so when we're talking about that in light of Exodus 39, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is it symbolizing? Okay, so in the Bible, clothing symbolizes inheritance and clothing represents inheritance. If that is true, then why did Aaron and the Levites need clothing and what did it represent? Why did they need special clothes? Okay, everyone had clothes. Why did they need special ones? First, why did the Levites need clothing? This is great. The answer to this question comes from a singular distinction between the tribe of Levi and the rest of the tribes of Israel. The Levites, as you know, did not receive any land in Israel as their inheritance. Right? If you look at the inheritance map, there's no Levi tribe there. Why? Was it because they were bad at being, and being punished, like the no dessert clause if you did not uh, you know, finish your vegetables? No, just the opposite. The Levites were special and set apart. Right? They weren't wimps. Right? Remember, the Levites... The Levites were the one at the golden calf episode when uh, all of that tragic idolatry unfolded. Moses said, who is with me? And the Levites strapped on their swords and went out and killed all of those people engaging in that illicit idolatry. Right? They were like the special forces unit in the Israelite camp. They were the ones who would do whatever it took to honor Yahweh's name. For this reason, 
they had a special status among the tribes of Israel. Okay? Though there are several passages that state it this way, one good summary statement about the issue is found in Numbers 18.20. Numbers 18.20 says this, The Lord said to Aaron, You will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. Let me read that again. It's so good. The Lord said to Aaron, you will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. So the answer to our first question is that the special Leviticus clothing, Levitical clothing, represents the special Levitical inheritance. Their inheritance was not land, but God himself. And their special clothing represented this fact and served as a regular reminder of this special relationship. Every time they went in to serve, they put on this clothing and reminded them that God is my inheritance. Second, what type of inheritance did this priestly garment represent? Right? If God is my inheritance, what does that really mean if I don't get land? Right? Why all the Levitical bling? You could put it that way. Wouldn't a nice suit have done the trick? Or some Under Armour underwear as opposed to the linen stuff they had to wear? Right? Well, how about some Brooks Brothers stuff? Why all of this fancy clothing with turbans and gold necklaces and jewels and all the colors? It's a great question to ask. The first clue comes from the structure of the text. The sevenfold presentation of Exodus 39 recalls the sevenfold presentation of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. So remember when Pastor Phil read the text, there was the seven sections each concluded with just as the Lord had said to Moses or commanded Moses. That sevenfold structure should remind you of something when it comes in sevens, and that's the seven days of creation in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. Second, you also may have noticed in the reading of the text, but probably a little more hidden, the repetition 17 times of the verb to make. All right, it's the number, it's the most common, it's just everywhere. You can't, in Hebrew, it's really easy to see. They made, they made, they made, they made, they made 17 times in 31 verses. So more than once every two verses. Okay, this combination of making according to the command or word of the Lord also connects us with Genesis 1 and 2 because everything was made by the command or word of the Lord. So in our text, we've got this making, making, making by the command or word of the Lord. And that's the exact structure of the book of Genesis. And God said, and it was, and the Lord said again. Okay? So this, this Genesis 39, Exodus 39 text is being cast in a Genesis 1 light for us. Third, we noted earlier that the making of the Levitical garments in Exodus 39 represented the climactic event of the tabernacle construction. In fact, in both accounts, the seventh section is set apart and described as holy. Just like day seven, the crown of the, the, the Sabbath day, that's holy. And then on the turban, holy to the Lord. The seventh section is holy. It is no stretch then to connect the climactic creation of man in the image of God in Genesis 1 with the climactic recreation of Aaron in the same image through clothing. The image that we had marred or lost in creation because of our sin is being restored and reconstituted in glory in these garments. Fourth, the stones located on Aaron's chest piece 
are very special stones. Their value does not stem from their geological rarity or from their obvious beauty. Rather, you may know, these are heavenly stones. Heavenly stones. What do you mean by heavenly stones? Okay. This particular collection of stones appears in, script, appears in our scriptures in only three distinctive locations. Okay. Exodus 39, here. Ezekiel 28, and the book of Revelation. Okay. Let me read to you in Ezekiel 28. These are the stones of Eden, right? The garden of God, the earthly court of his presence. In this text, they clothe a kingly priest who is to rule over and protect the sanctuary of God, just like the Levitical priests. Here's what we find in Ezekiel 28, verses 13 and 14. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On, this, on the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. For this reason, I ordained you. You were on a holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. They are the stones of Eden, of God's earthly throne, in Ezekiel 28. They also appear... In Revelation 21, verses 18 to 20, in the new heavens and the new earth, if you can believe that. Here it is. The, um, the, John is seeing this new heavens and new earth, and the angel standing with him, and he says, let me show you this place. And the wall, it says in verse 18, was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third Chalcedon, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethysts. The point of all of this is that the Levitical garments, especially those of the high priest, signified the type of inheritance God was promising his people, the inheritance of heaven. Aaron's garments point beyond the Middle Eastern dirt patch we think of as Israel's inheritance, Palestine. They show us that those recreated in the image of God have become heirs of heaven. And Aaron's clothing becomes a, uh, embodies a real-life reminder of our coming inheritance, the new heavens and the new earth, something we so desperately need for endurance, encouragement, and hope as we persevere in this world. It's like when we take communion a little bit. This reminds us of what Christ has done for us and what he longs to do with us to eat a feast in the new heavens and new earth. Every time everyone would see those, those um, high priestly garments, every time we read about them, we see our inheritance and our destiny. And we're encouraged to have hope and endure in this particular world, how they function. So the question is then, if clothing like this represents inheritance and it's the inheritance of heaven, how do we get clothes like this? How do we get clothes like this? First, let me just review a few things. Number one, garments are important in the Bible because they represent inheritance. Number two, the Levitical garments in particular represent God himself as the inheritance of his people, the new heavens and the new earth where we will commune with him forever. Additionally, that inheritance will be enjoyed together with God eternally on the new spectacular earth. And what the authors describe in Revelation is that the earth, the foundations of the new heaven and the new earth will look like all those jewels. 
This means that these garments are the garments of our salvation. And that not just, the, and not just for the Levites, but for all of us, we must have these garments if we wish to share in the inheritance of God in the new creation. Right? You've got to get some garments like this to get in. You can't go in the clothes you're wearing now. Right? There is a huge problem for us because of our sin. Let me just read it this way from Isaiah 64, 6. He says it better than me. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind of our and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. We do not have the righteous garments of salvation, but the excrement-soaked rags of our righteousness. If even our best efforts on our best days represented the filthy rags of hell's inheritance, from where then do we get these new clothes? And what is their cost that Isaiah is telling us about? Here comes the answer. And it may just blow your Levitical boxers right off. Isaiah 61, 6 through 10 tells us, The Lord has anointed me to preach good news, the gospel, to the poor. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, and he has dressed me in the robe of righteousness. Isn't that amazing? But how do we pay for these clothes? What is the cost? We have no righteousness with which to make this purchase. Our moral wallets are empty, and our deeds are filthy rags. We are without hope. The answer. Remember that when Jesus hung on the cross, he hung there naked. He hung on the cross in this state of our shame, setting aside his inheritance in order to buy back our inheritance. The inheritance that we lost in Adam, in our sin, has been repurchased with the nakedness of Jesus. That's why it's so important that you read in the gospel accounts that they stripped him and sold his clothes off. He disrobed before the world so that we might be clothed in the garments of salvation and stand in perfection before his Father. Isn't that good news? This is why Paul wrote, For all who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Right? And again, the imperative in Romans 13, 14, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the whole armor of God. So now you can see that Mark Twain was both right and wrong. He was right. Clothes do make the man or the woman. With the right clothes, we can be remade into the image of God, becoming the heirs of heaven with God as our greatest reward. But he was also wrong. We know that at least one naked man influenced society. In fact, his nakedness is what purchased our new clothes. And this influence is still to be found even in the more secular culture that we now live in. One good example is the Oscar celebration that happens every year in Hollywood, right? You know it? Every year at the Oscar Awards in Hollywood, California, the media will ask this question 
of the stars as they are rolling down the red carpet. Right? You know what it is. Who are you wearing? Right? Isn't that a great question? Who are you wearing? So Christians out there, I ask you, who are you wearing? Are you wearing Gucci? Rags. Versace? Trash. Armani? A cheap knockoff. When you appear before the king of heaven and he asks you this same question, only one answer will suffice. I am clothed in Christ. It is his righteous deeds that I wear, not my own. Here are the words of Jesus from Revelation 3.5 as I close. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot out his or her name out of the book of life, but I will confess their name before my Father and before his angels. Who are you wearing? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the good news of the gospel as presented to us in Exodus 39. We are reminded of the precious inheritance promised from the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, but also of the tragic fact that we lost it when we disobeyed and were plunged into sin in our rebellion and our the fact that we are in Adam. But in the same way, we rejoice in the hope of the gospel that you promised that we would one day inherit this precious inheritance and that you have made that path by emptying yourself in your son, divesting all that you had in heavenly glory so that we might attain to that great promise, that we might be reclothed in the image of Christ, that we might be reinvigorated to re-inherit the new heavens and the new earth. And so, Father, today we are awestruck by your grace in Christ. We are awestruck by what you have promised to do for us and that you would mercifully take off our filthy rags and reclothe us in the righteousness of Christ. It is in his name that we pray and rejoice today. Amen.